Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, in 1997, a black teen was beaten into a coma by the son of a powerful Chicago union boss. So why did black leaders support the attacker? An investigative reporter looks at how the incident affected his community and changed his own life. We'll discuss the podcast, You Didn't See Nothing. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hey, Kevin. It's so good to be back alive. It's so good to uh, be back alive and to get get back and have you do all that snow blowing for us. Toby just said there's going to be no more snow this year, so he knows something, right? There better not be, because I just gave the okay for Yardbird to deliver the rest of our new deck furniture. Oh, wow. (laughs) So Yeah, that doesn't. Yeah, it better not snow, is all I got to say. And uh, Yardbird, by the way, great company. I hope they sponsor our podcast someday. Just going to throw it out there. throw it out there, (laughs) like the hint water I'm about to drink. Listen, we manifested that. I'm drinking some Whoa. right now. Can it's we, delicious. Can we get a Volvo? I want a Volvo next. <laughs> also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of The Final Curtain, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Welcome, Rebecca. Uh, I, well, I should say thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> she forgot how to do the job. It I happens. forgot how to do the job. No, I was going to say, somebody this week said to me, you do all these things. What's next? Are you going to be an Uber driver? And I'm like, I don't know. It's a possibility. Hey, you better watch yourself because <laughs> Livy Burdett could jump in at any second and take the job from you. <gasps> She's pretty smart. Oh, no. yeah. Uh-oh. She was pretty smart. After she spilled all the tea about... All your um, your bad behaviors while we record. <laughs> I haven't listened, so I don't know. Don't, don't listen. Don't listen. Be like, you're really hard on Laura. It's like, you don't have to work with well, her. I did, I did see on Twitter that people were really like upset about that. No, they weren't. Only one person was. But it was mostly because in the after show, people were asking questions. And the questions were like, who is the hardest to edit? And it was Livia who was like... Laura. <laughs> but in oh, the best no. way possible. <laughs> and that to do with cat noise. That to do with cat noise. Oh, okay. Purring. All right. <laughs> Loquacious purring. 
You know, that yeah. kind of thing. Random yeah, talking stuff. to people who aren't on the microphone. <laughs> I just, yeah, you know, yes. roll with it. But we all know that you are one of my favorite people, Laura Bricker. Thank so. you. Thank you, Rebecca. And you are mine. And finally, our captain of all things cynical, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, the wonderful Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. All right. So, Kevin, this is obviously Monday's program. Yeah. What is happening on Thursday's podcast? On Thursday, we're going to be talking about the podcast from Wondery and Novel. It's called Stolen Hearts. Can't wait for that one. All right, so we have an announcement to make. Yeah, we want to congratulate our very own Toby Ball on the launch of season three of Strange Arrivals. Congratulations, Toby. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's finally seen the light of day. Do you want to talk a little bit about it and like maybe make some people want to listen? Plug a little? Oh, I don't know. You don't have to listen. No, <laughs> yeah. I'm just, um, yeah. So it's like I got it's, uh, paid already. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, this season got a lot of cool things coming up. Uh, the first episode is dropped, and it's about a strange UFO case in Papua New Guinea back in the fifties, where like three dozen people saw over three days a uh, uh, a craft hovering above the ocean. Uh, next week or this coming week, I guess, Wednesday, we're going to spend a few episodes looking at another thing that's kind of like that. It takes place in Zimbabwe at a uh, sort of combined elementary and middle school uh-huh. where 60 kids yeah. saw a craft. They didn't see it land. They just saw it. But then like beings sort of traipsing around and then we kind of go from there. But anyway, so it's a lot of like really interesting you know, encounters. Uh, we'll be doing some alien abduction stuff a little bit later uh, in the season. Playing all the hits. All the hits. So if you haven't heard Strange Arrivals before, there's two seasons already, and this is the third season that just started. How do you feel about the fact that our friend Payne Lindsay is coming out with a competing UFO podcast called High Strange? <laughs> High Strange? Is that what it's called? Yes. High Strange Arrivals? Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Hopefully there's some good synergy there. Yes. We'll get the, uh, get some get the UFO people out of the out of the woodwork. Cross yeah. promo the hell no, out I'm of that. No, I'd like to listen to Pains as well. Yeah. Seriously, yeah. get your people to reach their people and do some cross promos. You get some, all that audience. There's something about uh, alien gankers. <laughs> gank- that's right. I know. I saw that clip you guys did about the goose ganker and I was like, I really kind of miss the goose ganker. I do too. I do. Yeah. 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 Laura, you don't remember the clip from the original podcast where you talked about how Ken's cousin chopped the head off a goose and sent it to his girlfriend? (laughs) I don't, but I know which cousin that was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suspect I know which cousin that was. So uh, yeah, no, but I don't remember that. There's more than one that it could be? There's some interesting cousins in that family. <laughs> wow. Oh, jeez. Wow. Well, all I will say before we start the podcast is stay tuned for the business section for some more exciting plugs, okay? All right. All right. Just don't skip it. Don't skip the business section. All right. So, Kevin, I'm really excited to talk about what we're talking about on this podcast. Me too. So can we just get it started? Do it. All right. Leading off, let's drop that first clip right now. In the vicious act that has gone to the heart of Chicago's deep racial divide. This kind of savage, senseless assault strikes at the very heart of America's ideals. In 1997, 13-year-old Leonard Clark rode his bike into a white Chicago neighborhood only to be jumped and beaten into a coma by a group of teens. One of them was the son of Frank Caruso, a union boss with reputed mob ties. The crime shook the black community and shocked the city. Then, almost overnight, 
the news stories turn to racial reconciliation and forgiveness. This is a podcast about how that happened and how it changed my life. So brace yourself, because this shit is bananas. As a young man, Johans LaCour was puzzled by why some black community leaders rallied around Frank Jr., who was trying to mend his public image before trial. Now an investigative reporter, LaCour revisits the crime and its aftermath and reflects on how the incident affected his own life. It's like they were saying, you didn't see nothing, move along. But I'm not going to move along. I'm going to be right here, standing in my rage, unreconciled. From USG Audio and Invisible Institute comes the podcast, You Didn't See Nothing. Through the lens of his lived experience, Lesore probes the actions of those in power who stood behind a white assailant instead of his young black victim. And he asks why calls for racial reconciliation are not a two-way street. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from You Didn't See Nothing. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Now, Laura, as I said in the introduction, we are talking about somebody with true lived experience of this story. And I just want to mention, Johans is exactly my age. I remember this story very well. And he is talking about it because he was there in the moment when this happened. How do you think that informs his experience telling his story, Laura Bricker? Well, I think that he has a lot of credibility here because not only is he the person that was there to tell this story originally, he's somebody that knows the neighborhood, knows the streets, knows all the cast of characters and players, and also knows the uphill battle that he had to report this when this first happened back in 1997. So, I mean, I think, you know, at the time he was, you know, in his early 20s, he was selling like $10 bottle, $10 bottles of weed. He was selling $10 bottles of weed, uh, $10 bags of weed. He was living with his dad in the south side of Chicago. And you hear how he was spurred to action because what was a horrible situation, which was basically a hate crime, was immediately spun as this is an opportunity for racial reconciliation. And that motivated him to get out and tell the other story. So to to have the perspective now 25 years later from him, who when he went in was extremely well positioned to tell the story, you know, I, I think that really added another level of depth and understanding to this this case, what has and hasn't happened since then. And just sort of, I mean, because I was thinking like, what would happen if this happened now? And I think that, you know, he's the perfect person to tell that because he knows what happened then. So, Kevin, I will just uh, throw something out there. I think this is one of the most creatively and beautifully produced podcasts I have ever heard. Mm. Full stop. Mm -hmm. The first few minutes of this podcast oh. are incredible. Talk about that. Yeah, I was like, after the, like three minutes in, I'm like, wow, this is really good. And then after 10 minutes in, I was like so excited that we were going to be talking about this podcast. And I'm like, I was like congratulating myself. Yes, I'm so glad I picked this. This is going to be a great discussion. Congratulations to you yeah, on this podcast, myself, Kevin. Patting myself on the back. <laughs> you get all the credit for this. Look, Johans, <laughs> Johans is incredible. He's like the emotional center of the podcast, obviously. And I'm like, I want to go have a beer with him, but I don't think I'm 
I'm cool enough. And just like his storytelling is great. He's a great narrator. His voice is authentic in both his writing and in his delivery. The way he weaves in his friends' interviews, just like so seamlessly. Yeah, but I got to tell you from off the beginning, the story about him being in college and then the classmate who just said, This white kid, another student, he stands up in front of everybody and he's like, if Europeans took over Africa and its resources, then that's just too bad because that's how land is acquired. And if Africans were enslaved and brought to America as slaves, that's just tough luck because that's how labor is acquired. And then he says, well, if I follow you to your car and I put you in your trunk and take your car, is it just too bad because that's how transportation is acquired? That was like an incredible line. That is going to go down as one of the best vignettes in podcast history. He's just so great. And that has nothing yet to do with the real meat of the story yet. It just I was just blown away from from jump. But it's setting up character. It's setting up yes. context. It's oh, yeah. setting up place and time. And it's setting up where he is coming from then and now. Yeah. And it's perfect. And Toby, we're talking about a journalist here who was a journalist then as a young person and as a journalist now, a younger person, I should say. He was in his 20s at the time. Um, And we are having all these conversations right now about the role of journalism and how it's changing, right? We had this conversation with Bone Valley. We heard Gilbert uh, King struggling with it and deciding like what, quote, conventions of journalism to sort of let go as he's telling Leo's story and trying to dig in there. And... People with lived experience have been telling the powers that be in journalism for decades that the conventional structures of what has been taught about journalism do not work in getting to the truth. There's a strong case to be made in this podcast for that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because you had a note about that as well. Yeah, well, I think the first time we talked about it, I think it was largely you, was in the Trojan horse affair. And I get it. I, I don't know if it worked perfectly in that case. In this case, yeah, I mean, it, it's clear, like, Johans is not, does not pull punches about where he stands on things. You know, I think a lot of the energy of the podcast, you know, comes from his, you know, he's obviously, it's the anger around what happened and then what the ramifications were. And so he's pretty clear about who he feels are the good actors in this and the bad actors in this. And spoiler alert, it's the people who are preaching uh, reconciliation just mere like hours or days after the event are not the good guys. So, yeah, I kind of felt like this is a very good example because of his closeness to the situation. And I, if memory serves, he didn't. Uh, no, Leonard, but he talks about how almost immediately afterwards he gets a group of guys together and they're going out for, you know, revenge to uh, beat the crap out of some people. Fuck that shit. We got to, you know, we got to get as many people as we can. What's a proper response to something like this that's happening in our city? I couldn't think of anything other than like... We got to go over there. You know, sometimes you got to go to war to get peace. And then after that, he becomes a reporter for, you know, black audience newspaper uh, and gets kind of frustrated with the limited reach that he has there. So, yeah, I, I kind of feel this would be a very different podcast if it was on the one hand this and on the other hand this. Right. I mean, he's got he's got such a strong point of view. 
but doesn't lose the nuances, which I guess we'll we'll talk about later. Given his strong feelings about these things, the other points of view are are brought up, right? I mean, he lets that stuff come out, but you know, you can tell how he feels about it, and he's not giving it the same weight as the people he feels are on the right side of things. So yeah, I, I just thought this was sort of the best of that kind of it's not really advocacy, but it's it's sort of being clear sighted about what's going on in what is sort of a, a highly charged but also nuanced situation. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, there's this thing where you can be a human being, but also tell the truth, right? And that's mm-hmm. kind of what's happening here. I actually think the young journalist story is super interesting, Laura. I mean, we're talking about somebody who went to work for a super local publication and uncovered some really riveting stuff, actually found new facts and woke up the next morning and was like, this is going to make national news. Like the Chicago Tribune is going to pick up on my new facts and, you know, people are going to be calling me. And 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 I imagine this is how I imagine that little newspaper on Long Island must have felt when they discovered all that stuff about George Santos, that like he was lying about all those things <laughs> yeah. when he was running oh, yeah. for office that like and then nothing happened like the, the North Shore Reader or whatever that paper was called. North, and like nothing happened. And then like after George Santos is elected, the New York Times writes a story. I imagine the reporters at local paper are like, what? Like Hello? we did this months ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what did you think about that? Cause, because, you, you know, it's like this is a person who and I think it's an incredible story that he tells that like. You know, journalism was going to be the career that he was hoping to do. He could only do it because he was also selling drugs to make money. And he was like, people are going to listen when I write this. And then they didn't. Yeah, that's that's um, maddening um, because I, I definitely can relate to him as somebody that has spent many years working in a local journalist capacity. And they are the watchdogs that... I think are are more important sometimes than national journalists because there's a lot of national media following things in like small communities with issues that come up. Sometimes there isn't a local watchdog and there will be like a meeting or something where there's like one person. And if your local journalist isn't there to be that watchdog, that information isn't going to come out and the public isn't going to be served. And so I felt his frustration because I was like, oh my God, this is, like, seriously, like you have this story, you're like, this is big. I've got this out. Now this is going to go even bigger. This is going to shine a light on it. And then they're like, nope. I, I, I definitely felt the frustration. But I, again, I think I come back to just the role of local journalism throughout the country, especially now as we're seeing resources cut for local journalism. I mean, there's been massive layoffs across the country recently in community newspapers and you know, there's always going to be turning on your 630 news to see like the nightly news, but there might not always be that local person there. And you as an everyday citizen want to know what's happening in your community and you want to see change on that level. And I think I really respect that he was doing that. Yeah, I can. Laura, I think that you would agree that you could see why you probably do make more money selling drugs than being a journalist, right? Especially oh my God, a, yes. Yeah. Oh God, there's no money in journalism. No money. What was he making, like 25 bucks? Yeah. Journalists don't know how to do business. So that's why I'm yeah. just going to say, let's do the business section. Oh, Kevin. Oh. What a transition. Holy cow. Wow, that was, that was smooth. I didn't even know that was coming. That All was right. so smooth. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy. Maybe you are cool enough to have a beer with Johan. <laughs> 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 
Uh, I hate stopping to talk about this podcast, but we must do some business. We're going to talk about what we have going on on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the crime writers on after show this week. We're going to talk about the acquisition of In the Dark by The New Yorker. Dying to talk to someone about it. May as well be you three. And then we're also going to talk about our travels and Lars' travels and all the hijinks. How we got kidnapped by some spring breakers. How we got kidnapped. Jeez. (laughs) We went to a hotel. It was like... if uh, STDs built a Disneyland resort, it was that just... That was like a Mayan temple. Yeah. Oh, God. Did you have to hose yourself down afterwards? Yes. Pretty much. Pretty much. Oh. Want to let uh, patrons know, too, we're going to have a live Crime Writers on recording. You'll be able to go and watch the four of us record our upcoming show. Uh, this event's going to be on March 29th. You're going to hear us talking about the podcast, The No Good, Terribly Kind, Wonderful Lives, and Tragic Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. Wow. So that's your homework. You get to join us, watch us make all our mistakes, swear at one another, see how the raw dough looks before it's made into a nice... Watch Laura talking to her cats. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we also have uh, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. Last month, Toby and his guests discussed the book, uh, Tell Me Everything. And now he's got more homework for folks. Toby, what is the next book that you're going to be tackling on the Deep Dive? Uh, the next book, and I'll, I'll tell you, we're uh, going to be taping on April 4th. I haven't told Kevin this, but but that's okay. when we're doing it. Um, this doesn't count as be, a notification, by the way. Yes, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll make it official. Um, we're going to be discussing The Evidence of Things Not Seen by James Baldwin, wow. which I didn't realize he'd written a book about the Atlanta child murders, but, wow. but he did. So um, I, I'm excited to read that, and the uh, panel... It's going to be Ronald Young Jr. Oh, and Shirley so Lairo oh. and uh, Marsha Chatlin. Oh, my God. I feel so we're going to be talking about again in the next few minutes. Marsha Chatlin. Um, where, where have we heard her before? All I right. need baby Marsha Chatlin. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I haven't started the book yet. I'm really looking forward to it. And, um, you know, given who the guests are, it's going to be a great conversation. If you join us on Patreon, you can get access to nearly 340 exclusive podcasts. They just multiply every week. No, see, you were thinking about the time we said that there were 400 crime writers nope. on episodes. Nope, I'm thinking about when you said there were 200 things back there. It was like four weeks ago, and now there's 340. Yeah, that's not how like math works, but that's fine. I They're feel tribbles. like your memory changes more than Kevin's speaking. That's yeah, right. They're yeah. tribbles. Uh, also, Rebecca, give you one chance here in the business section to plug Couple the great things. stuff at New Hampshire Public Radio. Couple things. Thank you to Sarah Carradine. You know why I owe you big time, right? Just want to throw that out there. Number two, please, please, please catch up on Bear Brook Season 2. As of this dropping, Episode 5 is out. And I entreat you to stick stick around till Episode 8, which I think is one of the best podcast episodes I've ever heard in any series in my life. I'm not overselling it. I also really want you to listen to a new series that I actually worked on way more hands-on than Bear Brook. It's a three-part series coming out from the show that I oversee called Outside In. Uh, Toby, you will enjoy it. It's about a feud inside a subculture. Ooh. It's called The Underdogs, um, and it is incredible. Kevin heard a few minutes of it today. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy a few minutes you heard? I did. I can tell you it's uh, without giving too much away. It has to do with uh, a crime within the sled dog Iditarod race community. Yeah. And about some dogs that were maybe abandoned by some scrupulous type. Anyway, yeah. But it's really about getting inside this incredibly interesting subculture that is very closed off because they don't talk to the media 
because they're very criticized by people a lot. It is a super duper interesting series and I'm so proud of it. So, 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 so proud of it. Please check out The Underdogs from Outside In from NHPR. Just look for Outside In wherever you get your podcasts and follow it and listen to The Underdogs. Episode one is out now. Episode two will be out Thursday. Check it out. I cannot be more proud of this if I tried. And thus ends... Say it. Thus ends the business section. The business section. Fade that music out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Toby Ball, uh, one yes. of the interesting themes of this podcast is how quickly, um, I mean, this is not unique to this story, but Johans goes straight to it. That immediately after this beating, there isn't even a period where anger is allowed to foment for a few minutes before leaders of the community, leaders of the country, and then even leaders within the black community that Lennard is a part of go to let's forgive white people, let's reconcile, let's all be one with each other. Yeah, I mean, it's. It's an interesting uh, situation that he lays out. You know, I think the the sort of national thing, you know, is I guess somewhat less surprising. Unfortunately, that that's that's always kind of the reaction. I think when he brings it down more to, the, you know, the black community in Chicago, uh, he's uh, particularly talking uh, about this guy Reverend Martin, mm. who was Harold Washington's was was the um, the preacher at Harold Washington, who was the first black mayor of Chicago's uh, church. And then this guy Aziel, who I guess was the head of the black Israelites. Anyway, those two guys seem to really put a lot of their capital behind pushing this idea of reconciliation. They sort of buddy up with Frank Sr., the the father of the the kid who seems to be most in the frame for this beating. And then there's pushback, right? There's there's a whole bunch of people who say no. There's these really pretty crazy scenes where there's a group that's outside of Reverend Martin's church, like just yelling stuff at him. But Monty's yelling at folks as they enter the church. 
You standing with white folks over in Bridgeport. I don't care where you from. The churchgoers ain't having it. At one point, there's pushing and shoving between the two groups. The cops show up. And what it, it kind of comes down to is that Martin, Reverend Martin and this guy, Asiel, they seem to sort of carry themselves more as politicians, maybe, than, than clergy. And that what they do is they see this beating as rather than being sort of a moral cause, as being kind of a political cause. And it leads them to think, you know, we can get something out of this. Like what's what's happened to this kid, what's happened to Leonard has happened, right? There's no going back on that. So why don't we leverage this to get something? And the way to do that is to promote reconciliation. And uh, Johans and, and, you know, this other guy, Bumani, and and a, a whole bunch of people. He's got the the people in this, some very, very rich personalities. You know, they're, they're not having it. I mean, that's not the appropriate response. I mean, he puts forward that argument, but it's hard to listen to him talk about it without sort of agreeing with him that it, it's, it's a little quick, right? It's a, it's a, you're a little bit quick to, to forgive and try and make nice. So, yeah, I, I just I haven't really heard it quite this way. And I, I think it was very affecting. And it's something that I thought about a lot after I listened to that episode. Yeah, one of the things, Rebecca, you said about how they frame racial reconciliation, I, I wouldn't say it was necessarily black people go forgive white people. It's presented as both sides come together, which ends up being okay, black people, when are you going to forgive white people? Yes. And it's never, okay, white people, when are you going to reconcile either, you know, engage with the black community or take responsibility, anything like that. It's always just kind of a, a one-way street. It's always black people do the work. Yeah. Always. Yeah, even do, though, yeah, do the even work. Even though yeah. we're the ones who beat you. Yeah, exactly. And I think, Toby, you're right, Lennard was 100% a political pawn in this and that how it was seen to be advantageous. And his mother. And his mother. But it's I, what, how I like about how the podcast was structured is that for the whole time, I'm thinking, why, why, why? So they don't hit you. Johans doesn't hit you with this fact right away. He gets you into like, OK, well, why? Why is Frank being, you know, seen in church? Why is Frank Jr. being photographed in a magazine as, quote unquote, having a crush on the reverend? Star? Like, what the fuck is all this about? It isn't until later on where we hear from or it's related that what the clergyman thought was that Frank Caruso is a labor leader and we can leverage this to get more people from the black community into organized labor. Maybe. Or maybe. Or, or whatever. At least that was one of the stated things. I don't know if that really worked, but the but at least to me it was like, oh, maybe that's- now I get why this is happening this way. And while it's it's it answers a question, it doesn't make it any less horrible. No, and all I could think, Laura Bricker, is these parents, we hear tape of this kid who is one of the four, probably. I mean, we hear witnesses say four, right? Four, at least four people beat this kid nearly to death. This kid, Frankie Jr., was the ringleader. We hear him on tape threaten a reporter He's doing other behavior after this where he's like violent and awful. We hear him completely unrepentant after the beating and his parents are on this constant PR tour and like immediately going to churches, immediately doing whatever. And I am just like, it just seems to me to be so, and I'm sorry, I know that Johans is so generous in the podcast to them in a way, which I appreciate. I appreciate that he's, going to the community and talking to the white guy with the Black Lives Matter sign in his yard. I appreciate his openness and his generosity. 
all I could think about was that Frank Sr. and his wife were probably going home every night be going like, I cannot believe we have to interact with these fucking people. Like, that's all I could imagine, even though it may not be true. I don't want to like put words in their mouth, but like their PR tour really grossed me out. I don't know. I, 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 that's how I felt about it in my heart. Yeah, well, it's, it's a double standard. I mean, it's a double standard for white teenagers being accused of a crime versus black teenagers being accused of a crime because just the sort of sense of entitlement and not entitled. I don't know if entitlement is the right word, but this sort of like, oh, this is so out of character and this couldn't possibly be it because these students are like at a Catholic high school and, oh, this other one went to this like institute and it was all very similar. Like, oh no, my kid's not like that. We're not racist. Oh, we wouldn't do that. If somebody was racist, we would call them out. It's not us. So it's like complete denial, complete double standard. And, you know, if you look at it objectively, it's kind of hard to miss that approach. You know, it's, it's, it's like, it's right there in your face. I mean, it's like, Remember, what was that that guy that was like that awful rapist that like got off? Oh, shit. Oh, the swimmer. Kid. You know that guy. That Fuck that guy. I hated that guy. It, it was like, oh, no. Like, oh, no, he's not a rapist. Oh, he's got a swimming career or whatever. Woo. Boo-hoo for him. And it's like, no, that's a double standard because yeah. he's a white kid. So, yeah, it, it was it was hard to listen to, Rebecca. It was very hard for me. And, and actually, it was really interesting to me to hear the media coverage that they By the way, again, I cannot stress enough how beautifully produced this podcast is. Josh Block was from the CBC. We've actually talked about a couple of his podcasts on the show. Uh, He's now at USG Audio. I really think that whoever worked on this podcast and like let the sound of the podcast come through, weaving in the even the media coverage of it at the time and even like the whiteness of the NPR coverage versus the non-whiteness of some other coverage, but just the overall sort of whiteness of the media coverage generally. When I believe it was like Scott Simon, maybe like in the diner talking Mm -hmm. to like the white patron. Oh, the white patron. What a fucking asshole. He was like, I'm not racist, but I'm not I'm not a racist. But why can't they be called a racist as well as we are in their feelings? Are you recording this? Holy God. One of my favorite scenes in the podcast that I just want to point to, and this is like, again, pointing to the beautiful production of the podcast and Johans's willingness to just let scenes be. Because, Toby, you pointed this out. Instead of narration, instead of exposition, we're just going to get a scene, was when Johans went to the Italian parade. Just to, And he says, I just want to get Italian people in their natural environments. <laughs> <laughs> and then who approaches him but Frank. And he walks up and he's like, hey, Denzel Washington, can I get your autograph? And you get that a lot, don't you? And I look and I'm like, oh, shit. And then he says, my name's Frank Caruso. Like, what did you think of the way these scenes were produced? Because this isn't the only time he does this, but it's definitely one of the most interesting times that he does this. Yeah, I I thought it was awesome. And and it kind of shows that, I mean, he considers himself an ambassador for the community and shows his standing. And I think that's one of the things you kind of, as the the season goes along, you realize that Frank Sr. is just not like some random guy in this, in this neighborhood. Like he's got a lot of clout, which is another kind of interesting sort of through line through this is that the way different people have clout, there's like religious leaders, there's political leaders. He's like a union slash potentially mob type guy. 
so that I thought was a very effective scene. I, I thought kind of a low key, like really funny scene was when he shows up. I think it's for the guy who is his editor at the newspaper. Yes. who He hasn't seen in a long time. Yes. And he shows up with like dinner and weed and uh, they sit down <laughs> and, uh, and then after a while, they're like, oh, fuck it. We're not going to we're not going to do the interview now. We're just going to hang out. We'll do the interview later, which I thought was hilarious. Um, just like Madeline Barron does it. But even yeah. the scene yeah, setting, exactly. even the scene setting with the apartment and like the everything, it's it's perfect. Yeah, the, the paintings and stuff. Yeah. So I thought the the I guess the way he deploys like times when you get information, times when you get an archival stuff, times when he when you just have these scenes and you're getting information just through the process of him hanging out with people or being in a situation or whatever, it, it keeps the, uh, there's like a nice texture to it, I guess. It, it just seemed to, to flow really nicely. Yeah. I thought Johansson's um, struggle with how to perceive Frank senior was really telling. First of all, I think Frank junior Frankie, I still think he's a piece of shit. Yes. Right? As a teenager, I feel like as an adult. Agree. He still is. And by the way, he is, uh, has Junior, Frankie, but, you know, has way more mob connections, according to the newspapers, than I think they were comfortable putting in this podcast. However, and I can only go by what Johans says about this, but that he says that when Frank met him at the St. Rocco feast, that he sounded like an ally. He they had an off-the-record conversation. That he sounded like a guy who was doing the work. And then when you have that after all these years, he still is in touch with the people. He's still present in that that community. Even though it sounded like a, a, a naked PR push. Like, what the fuck do you do with that? That he could have certainly walked away from that years and years ago. And why is he still here? Hmm. And it's not... Johans is kind of like... I don't know. I don't know how to deal with that. Is this sincere? Is it not? Is it something in between? Because if it's if you're going to have reconciliation and shit like that and you, you're the white guy, you got to put the work in. Is He's he being, putting the work in? Who knows? Like it's who knows? It is complicated. And that's what they are saying. And I that's like that is not subtle. That is like really deep and a good part of this. Listen, Johans is very generous. And I, I don't. Who knows what Frank Sr. and his wife are doing? But we can't ignore the fact that a witness was murdered in this case. Oh, that's a whole other fucking story. <laughs> I'm not saying he's a saint. And I'm not but, saying that Frank Sr. murdered this witness or ordered, but we cannot ignore the fact that a witness was murdered in this case. And we cannot affect that other witness, that other co-defendants were intimidated and changed their stories in this case. We cannot ignore those facts in this case that completely mitigated and helped Frankie Jr. ultimately, right? We cannot ignore oh, really? those no. things. No. So like no, Frank's Well, there was there was definitely a kind of a shit show clusterfuck at the end that results, yes. you know. Like in the beginning, oh they all these three bragged about it. Oh wait, only two people saw the attack. Oh wait, now only one can identify people. Oh wait, now, you know, it's like it it just snowballs into a place of like Witness tampering on steroids is what it and as murder, a defense investigator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really incredible. It's really incredible. And this is also this incredible part that I just want to talk about just for a minute, where Johans reflects, and this is sex. This is section with Zakia, the woman who keeps calling into the radio station, mm-hmm. where he reflects on his own role, and he talks about this is balance that he does, where it's like. I love it that this one kid immediately ratted on this other kid, but I hate snitches. 
And then he he's always doing this tightrope thing. And then he reflects on his own role as a heroin dealer in the community and how, whether or not he was a sellout. There are so many moments like this where it's like, I'm going to tell you everything about myself. Not so that I'm insulating myself against criticism, but that's so I can just be honest with you about where I'm coming at with this story and why it's complicated for me. Yeah, but he also deploys that strategically. When you say he says everything, he doesn't go and just sprouts out everything. When there are things that are, like you said, like about interrogations and taking the hit to go to jail and all that other stuff, he waits to bring that up where it means the most. Yeah, we don't know everything. Yeah. We don't know that. We, we yeah, but it, then it makes it has so much more impact. We, we know he has a daughter, but that's not part of the narrative. Like when he had the daughter. Right. Like, it's like it's like we know it, he wears glasses. Things come in like at the moments they matter. What were we going to say, Laura? Oh, yeah. No, when you were saying it's really complicated, I'm like, it's just the cast of characters makes this so complicated. You know, the mob people, the witness vanishing, the the kid who's the mob boss son, and and also the community of Bridgeport. Like, we haven't talked about that. And I think they do a really good job setting up Bridgeport as a community. And that was kind of, you know, illuminating to me, you know, that if you were Black, you knew you didn't go there. Right. Like, this was not a place that was welcoming to black people. And the reputation was long established. It was a pretty much all white working middle-class area. Italians. And yeah, uh, yeah, mobsters. Um, so I think there, there's a lot going on here in terms of the complexity of the issue that make it you know, that factor into what you were talking about. I grew up in, a, in Long Island, as I've mentioned on the show, and I'm very familiar with Italian communities that are incredibly racist, not necessarily all mobbed up, but there's a specific breed of diversity adjacent Italian communities that are very insular and extremely racist. And this all rang very true for me as somebody who is also like half Italian myself and probably has relatives who talk exactly like this, who grew up very near where I grew up. You mean Italians have special slurs that are just Italian. Exactly. Yeah. So, Kevin, we have to talk about one last thing before we wrap up. Yeah. Our friend who shows up as a surprise in the final episode, baby Marsha Chatlin. Holy crap. So this was my story. I was listening to this line that we were on the beach and I'm listening to this sounds like a flex. I'm listening to this, you know, and the whole thing about here come the teenagers talking about it. When she introduces herself, 16 year old Marcy Chatlin, I went, whoa, you actually threw your headphones out. You're not going to believe this. Like It's baby Marcia (laughs) Chatlin. And I want to I want to text her. And all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, there may be more of her. Keep listening. Keep listening. But she had. She the last had, word of the podcast. She did. She had like the the cra- like the thing that apparently resonated the most with those folks. But the way Marsha articulated hit me in a whole other way. Black life is a series of negotiations that force us to evaluate what our life is worth. Damn. I thought, wow, you know, it's not my lived experience. I can just try to be an ally. I'm imperfect in that way. But that spoke to me a lot, and I imagine it spoke to a lot of Black people, too. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. All right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out the podcast? You didn't see nothing. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this podcast? Yeah, this is a thumbs up. Uh, You should absolutely check out this podcast. We listen to a lot of media about cultural issues, racial issues, criminal issues. Um, This hits all three of those, and it is told by a narrator and investigative journalist, uh, Johans, who really has the reporting chops and the credibility and the background to tell this story you know, he's been reporting on this since 1997. And I think it's really interesting to hear his initial account of what he was doing when this happened in 97, his looking back. And he's just got a really great conversational style as he goes out and talks to people. It's 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 jam-packed with information, but in a way that's very conversational and easy to listen to and absorb. And I just think this is a really important podcast to listen to. Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for you didn't see nothing? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big thumbs up on this. Um, I just kind of felt like there was a lot to think about. Like after every episode, I'd kind of like have to contemplate a little bit about what he what he talked about. Um, it, it's sort of complicated and, and nuanced, but Johans is, is very like clear about what he believes about it and is able to get across, I think, very clearly you know, what's happening, what compromises are being made or aren't being made, who's opposing uh, things, how he feels about it. And he is a, as a person I've, I thought was, was very compelling. We, we don't even, we didn't even talk about some of that stuff during the main review, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is a little bit different than, than other stuff that I think we we've heard and I just, I, I, I can't recommend it enough. I, I, I really, I really like this. And I assume that'll be in my top two or three at the end of the year. Kevin Flynn. Yeah, this is a pitch perfect podcast for me. It's important. It's engaging. The narrator, Johans, is just such an intriguing, charismatic figure here, telling a fantastic story that even though he's not directly involved with what happened, he certainly brings alive the immediacy that that event had on his life. Changed his life, he says. Changed his life. He's also very conversational. At one point, he, he did the recap by saying, here's what's happened so far, or something like that. And I was like, why the fuck doesn't everybody do it like that? <laughs> That's so amazing. Why are we always like, previously on? You know? <laughs> why are we doing that? I just think it's great. I think that... Uh, I can't believe it's March, and I think we've already heard three of what are going to be the top ten podcasts of the year already. I, I don't see how 
Oh, we're going to forget this one. And I, you know it's good when a podcaster does what is essentially the story of his or her life. And then you're like disappointed that, oh man, they don't have a second life, isn't there? It's like, it's, it's like you, how are you going to get a sequel to this? That was the best stuff. I just think Johans is great. And if you're ever in New Hampshire, let's just go to a bar and I'll buy you a beer, but I'm not cool enough to hang with you. He would come to our house and bring some weed and like not tape anything. <laughs> I would come to your house with some weed and not tape anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I I cannot underline this enough. This is one of the best podcasts I've ever heard. Full stop. We just talked about I'm Not a Monster season two a couple weeks ago, and I was like, this is maybe going to be in my top two podcasts of the year. Um, I have just heard what I, I can't imagine a podcast topping this as my best podcast of the year. I mean, there might be one. I'm not going to like, no, I'm not close the door on the possibility. This podcast is extraordinary. It is one of the most creatively and beautifully produced. And I've never heard anything like it. I mean, and, and you know, for me, Kevin, whenever I hear something that's new that I've never heard anything like it before, mm-hmm. like that excites me because everything sort of sounds the same after a while. The you, memoir podcast has been done, but this isn't one where it's like well, the most interesting thing about it was me. Well, you also hear the thing that's been done before, but there's like, here's my friend so-and-so talking about whatever. It's not like that. It's like he's talking about his friend and then all of a sudden that person's just there and it's just woven in so beautifully and so organically and not overused. And the, every episode, there's a brand new convention of using tape that I have never heard before. It's like every episode, there's something new and creative. I am like, I don't know. I mean, I I obviously know Josh Block and Josh Block's work. I don't know any of the other producers on this show. I have to wonder how much of it was the team just following Johans's lead because we know that Johans is a great writer. We've heard that he's been a writer since he was a kid. A playwright or something. And just letting like the instincts that I think are there, like, because we hear that he's been working on this for a really long time, letting the production follow his writing instincts, I think was the right fucking thing to do. I've never heard anything like this before. I was there. I felt every beat of it. And frankly, like, I want everyone in America to listen to this podcast. It is so unbelievably important. The resonating message of this at the end, which is like that it is wrong to not let people of color sit in their anger for as long as they need to. And that's probably forever. Like this is an incredible podcast. I can't give, if I had eight thumbs, if I had 20 thumbs, that's how many thumbs I'd give up for this podcast. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast. A little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. Wow. The crime of the week. A Chicago man is suing. (gasps) Oh, suing? Buffalo Wild Wings, B-dubs. I'm so upset about this. He says the restaurant's boneless wings aren't made of wings. Oh, I agree with this. They're basically chicken nuggets. Okay, I know I'm with this now. You can sue them for that. The plaintiff says their boneless wings are just white breast meat that's deep fried to appear to be a wing. Yeah, he's right. Eamon Hollum says the public is being fooled. Although, as a B-dubs customer, I believe... He's the only one who may have ever thought there were wings in the boneless wings. I agree with that, too. (laughs) The chain restaurant known for its plethora of televisions and other distractions that have maybe almost killed me, a person with ADHD, added boneless wings in 2003. 
At the time, the cost of real wings was going up while the cost of breast meat was going down. They say the boneless wings are one of the most popular items on the menu. I have a theory about that, which I'll share with you in a few. Hallam says it's false advertising and it's the customers who are getting boned. (laughs) Panel, my question for all of you, bone in, bone out, ranch or blue cheese, hot, medium or mild, carrot or celery? How do you order your wings? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Oh my God, that's so many questions. Uh, Bone out, I agree. It's not real chicken. It's like chicken product. Um, Medium with a little spice, Uh, blue cheese, carrot sticks, and Caribbean jerk, because who doesn't love a good Caribbean jerk? So you like the bone out? I like the bone out, but I know that I'm not really eating chicken. I'm eating some sort of manufactured product. Okay, as long as you acknowledge that. Tell you what about you? Bone in, bone out, ranch or blue cheese, hot, medium or mild flavor, carrot or celery, go. Yeah, I'm from upstate New York, and the real crime here is the idea of a bone out chicken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I could either go, like I just get the traditional buffalo and Same. I can either do me- medium or hot. It just kind of depends on the mood. Uh, yeah, celery and uh, blue cheese. Uh, if you have a choice, Marie's blue cheese, I think is is the preferred. And what was the other thing where you asked? Toby, Kevin, I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you for Toby oh. Ball immediately. <laughs> like we are wing soulmates. I don't even yeah. need to answer this question. Wing soulmates. Yep. Kevin, what about you? Well, I, I kind of going to go with bone out. Uh, Good I job, Kevin. I prefer the ranch to the blue cheese. Ew. I'd get oh, the celery God. stick instead of the, uh, instead of the carrot. And I, I guess, I guess, you know, between the mild and the medium, I think there's the spicy garlic, which is my. <sighs> it's not even a wing flavor. It's my wing, Rebecca. I will say, B-Dubs has a great rub called Desert Heat in addition to their delicious buffalo sauce. Toby, you ever go to B-Dubs? I recommend it. It's kind of good. They've got yeah, games. You know, they got B-dubs, sports. B-Dubs closed around us, and then they opened, they closed, and then they opened one like a mile away. I, I can't We've got one. Come over out. to where we live. All right. That's going to do it for us. But uh, before we go, Laura Bricker, if folks want to berate you, but actually congratulate you for acknowledging that bone out wings are not actually wings, how can they find you on social media? They can find me at Laura Bricker. And Tony Ball, if folks want to congratulate you on only eating wings the proper way, how can they find you on social media? Have you ever seen a chicken with a wing that didn't have a bone? Um, yeah, you can find me at Toby Ball and H. And Kevin, if people want to tell you how handsome you are, how can they find you on social media? Oh, they can always do that at Kevin P. Flynn. And, and how you, cool I am. And if they, your new glasses? Yeah, my new glasses. Anyway, yeah. If you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram and compliment me on my perfect taste in wings, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you to join our incredible community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page. Just go there, hit join the group. We'll let you in if you're not a jerk. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. We get the crime writers on after show, Mary with podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the wonderful Livy Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement, because that's how podcasting works. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. As the umpire, you get down behind the catcher, a lot of times they 
umpire to put their hand on the catcher's back, yeah. I won't even fucking touch him. That's because I just. But you do lean very close. That's to wise. Them. I do. Yeah, I'm just like. <laughs> that's wise. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.